Blog Talk Radio. If you were hoping to connect with Parkinson's recovery on this day and at this hour, you are at the right place. We are here every Thursday at 11 o'clock Pacific Time, and I bid each of you a warm welcome. Today's show is packed full of information. My goal with each of my weekly radio programs is to offer so much content, so much information that the reward for listening to the program for an hour is you will get an idea, a suggestion, a tip, or a thought that you can run with if you happen to be an individual who has the symptoms of Parkinson's and if you are an individual who is taking care of an individual with the symptoms of Parkinson's, you too, if you are listening, will get some good suggestions for what you can do for yourself. So, this is Robert Rogers. You're at the right place if you were hoping to be able to connect with Parkinson's recovery. What is today's show all about? I've got four segments of an interview that I have done with a remarkable individual. His name is Steve folks. And Steve has done research in, in, in uh, a couple of specific areas. Uh, one of them is Alzheimer's and the other is Parkinson's. He's also got quite a bit of expertise in Down syndrome. And as you're listening to his interview, you may want to multitask and actually look at his website. It's ceri.com. CERI.com. His name is Steve Folks. Now, the first segment of my interview that I'm going to play for you, which is a recorded interview, is uh, my pursuit of a question that came down several months ago from several listeners. And the question went something like this. I want to know more about whatever happened to Annetta Freeman. Now, when I got the question, especially from a couple of sources, I quite frankly didn't have any idea who this particular individual was. So I did a search myself on the Internet. Uh, her name is A-N-N-E-T-T-A, and the last name is Freeman, F-R-E-E-M-A-N. And I found that there were some quite fascinating entries on the Internet from basically the mid-90s, and then they came up to a period of about the early 2000s, and then there's absolutely nothing else. Now, why is this interesting? It's interesting because the entries that I read for Anita Freeman basically said that, yes, she, she was diagnosed with the symptoms of Parkinson's in all the early uh, 1990s and began to pursue alternative therapies for herself in the form particularly of supplements and some other kind of therapies. And the report that was given was, and she is getting remarkably better. I mean, uh, the reports were really quite quite remarkable. And uh, it did uh, create a flurry on the Internet of interest in what, what she was doing. And there's also, by the way, if you actually pursue this, uh, in one of the pages you'll see a listing of the supplements that she was actually taking every day, and they were, they were quite extensive. I mean, this woman was dedicated to be able to recover and get well. But still, the curiosity for me was, all right, um, I've got a question out there. There's some interest in what actually happened to her, so how can I find the answer? The man who interviewed Anita Freeman 
back in the mid-1990s, is named Steve Folks. So I chased him down, and I asked him if he might be available to give us an update on actually what happened uh, to this individual who, by all reports, uh, in the mid and late 90s, uh, was making remarkable progress with being able to get relief uh, from her symptoms. This is Steve Folks' report on her particular situation, which I think you'll find quite fascinating. This is Robert Rogers from Parkinson's Recovery. I uh, have had a number of questions uh, from uh, listeners about Anita Freeman. Uh, Anita was diagnosed with Parkinson's uh, and uh, began launching a new and innovative approach uh, toward finding relief from her symptoms using a number of different uh, supplements. Um, And the questions here recently over the last few days have been, whatever happened to Anita Freeman? Uh, we want to know more about uh, her story. And so I did uh, an extensive search and have located Stephen Folks, who is the executive director of the Cognitive Enhancement Research Institute in Menlo Park, California. And Stephen uh, was the individual who interviewed Anita in the mid-1990s and captured her story about the kinds of things that she did in order to be able to feel better from the symptoms of of Parkinson's. I have uh, been able to contact him, and I have him with me today to tell us and update us about Anita's story, as well as to talk a great deal more about what people can do who have Parkinson's. So welcome so much, Stephen, uh, to this uh, discussion today. Thank you for having me. So tell us the uh, story of Anita, if you could go back uh, to the mid-90s and what was happening with her then and the kinds of things that she did in order to help herself feel better. Well, when I first um, talked with Anita over the phone, um, she had been uh, had successfully resolved a lot of her problems and was in a position of being relatively stable. And her functionality was way up. Her, her uh, tremor was primarily limited only to her weak side or her left side. And uh, when I met her at, in the, at the end of the decade, um, um, I wouldn't have thought that I would have been able to see, if I, she was in a large crowd, that she actually had Parkinson's disease at all, that she was um, you know, so effectively moving and uh, um, you know, her carriage was upright, and um, I wouldn't have necessarily guessed, and I think a lot of doctors wouldn't have necessarily guessed that she even had Parkinson's disease. Um, but in the early 90s, it was a very much different picture. And uh, when I interviewed her, I collected a lot of this information. And when I met her in person in Florida um, and in Los Angeles, I also got a lot of the backstory. And she had had a very uh, early onset Parkinson's, rapid progression Parkinson's, and had been put on um, uh, Eldapril in the uh, early 90s, um, 91 and 92, and um, had horrendous problems. Her Parkinson's disease accelerated. Uh, she ended up being bedridden, needed help to even get to the bathroom. I mean, this is how uh, compromised she was. And was, she was lucky enough to hear about uh, Discovery Experimental and Development's liquid Depronil. And when she switched from cinem- the, the uh, Elderpril to the liquid Depronil, uh, her condition turned around in weeks. Um, and 
later we found out that there was a contamination event that happened in the elder pearl supply at that time and parkinson's people all over the world were dying um, at a much more accelerated state there was a neurotoxin in the drug supply and so her experience was when she started taking it it was all contaminated and it was just making her sicker and sicker and sicker and so when she switched to this this high purity form of Depranil, you know, instantly she turned around and started recovering. The neuroprotective effects of Depranil manifested, and she just looked at this as being kind of a gift from God and uh, went on this search to find other nutrients and, and uh, dietary things that she could do to uh, augment the gains that she was making and found a lot of things that benefited her. Now, liquid Depranil, can you talk more about that? Is that currently available to people with Parkinson's? Or are people currently taking that? Um, it is not. Um, the discovery company was put out of business by the FDA. Um, the Justice Department prosecuted the guy who developed it, put him in prison for 13 years. Um, it was a, a, a massive bureaucratic snafu in terms of having the FDA lose all of his drug applications and obstruct him left and right, and then to then go after him and prosecute him when he circumvented their process to make Depernil available through a company in Mexico. I think it was a, you know, a travesty of justice of immense proportions. Um, so, you know, but the whole point is that there are liquid Depernils that are available. There's still one being made in Mexico. Um, your local compounding pharmacy can take, you know, standard um, Depernil and dissolve it in water and add some citric acid to it. So it's not really the question of whether or not it's liquid that makes the difference. It's really the fact that Discovery had developed a new process of making Depernil by a different method that resulted in highly pure Depernil. And that, I think, was why it was so much better. So that's the story of Anita basically in the 90s. Uh, what's happened since then? Well, um, the, the Depernil supply, uh, the, the Discovery brand Depernil supply uh, disappeared when the government shut down the uh, Discovery company. Um, it disappeared, and so Anita decided to, rather than take Elderpril, which she associated with you know, her horrendous you know, uh, pro progression of her disease, um, she decided to try um, ac an acupuncture therapy and got some pretty bad results from it and has since, um, I believe, passed on. Um, so um, I think that it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, Depernil is um, not available to people. It certainly is. But the, 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 the condition within the medical community has been tainted by this contamination event. And the doctors were basically told in the British Medical Journal that this contamination problem was an inherent flaw in Depernil itself. And so the company that had contaminated these people and resulted in all these deaths actually managed to keep their skeleton in the closet and prevent the medical community from learning that, it, that there had been a contamination problem. So if you want Depernil, if your your relatives want Depernil, if you want your, your your parents to have Depernil, it's a much harder sell to get your doctor to prescribe it because of this, you know, history and the cover-up that took place. So you can get a lot of flack uh, for, for seeking out Depernil. Uh, 
So there were two confounding factors for her. One of them was that she basically went cold turkey on Tepernel, and the other was that she engaged uh, a strategy of acupuncture. Was one of these two factors more uh, prominent in contributing to uh, her gradual decline? I have no, way, no idea, no way of knowing. Um, part of the mistake, I think, that Annetta made was that when she was told by the acupuncturist that she should stop her supplements, uh, she did. So she had developed all kinds of benefits from things like NADH and CoQ10 and lipoic acid, and she stopped taking those as part of the uh, protocol of going through this acupuncture therapy, and they warned her um, that it would things would get worse before they got better, that somehow the acupuncture-oriented realignment of the nervous system in the, in the meridians would somehow, you know, get worse before it got better. And so when she started to get worse, she didn't necessarily look at that as an immediate decision that this wasn't working, that there was some, you know, um, there was a silver lining in the cloud, so to speak. And so she kept at it for a longer period of time. So it then made it very difficult for her to then recover and go get back onto her, her previous protocol. But I'm sure the going off Depernil made a difference. You are suggesting, it sounds to me like then, that if uh, individuals who are listening and reading this are taking a regimen of supplements like uh, CoQ10 and folic acid, et cetera, et cetera, that it would not be advisable for them to go cold turkey and say, well, this is not doing me any good. I'm just going to stop taking this stuff. Well, um, there are things that you can take that don't make a difference and that you can go cold turkey on them without with minimum consequence. Um, there are other situations where it's critical, and I've run into situations where doctors have made this kind of recommendation because they don't understand something and they don't understand the consequences of how it may interact with, let's say, a surgical procedure or an anesthesia or, you know, uh, and, or even with their insurance because of potential liability issues, they will tell you to stop taking the supplements on the basis that that's not dangerous to them and that, you know, they're not, it's going to make their job easier because they won't have some kind of interaction that they don't understand. But, um, um, excuse me, but there are instances where um, the, um, the doctors have recommended withdrawal from nutrients where it's been absolutely ca catastrophic for people. Uh, the incidence that I'm most familiar with is the um, Down syndrome children when they have heart surgery, the doctors tell the parents to take their kids off of the, of the dietary supplements, and this causes massive oxidative stress in a surgical procedure where the oxidative stress is um, known to be severe enough to cause death on the operating table. Ooh. I mean, this, this was actually cataloged in a scientific study, you know, where people had gone in and looked at uh, peroxidation indices and and all kinds of measurements of oxidative stress during the procedure, and it was like the most severe kind of thing, comparable to having a heart attack in an adult. And yet the, they were telling these, these parents that they should take their kids off of the supplements that were preventing that oxidative stress. Uh, I, I just didn't understand it at all, and I just, you know, after you know, going through that, I just said to them, just don't listen to the doctors about that. You know, your children are too important. Here's the data. Look at the data. If they give you any flack about it, give them a copy of the study and just say, this is non-negotiable. You do it my way or you don't do it. 
And sometimes that's the kind of attitude it takes, you know, that staying alive is about defending yourself against the medical system as much as it is self-care options to use technologies that the medical system doesn't know about. People with uh, Parkinson's tell me that uh, they're really always interested in knowing how easy or how hard it is to be able to find sustained relief from their symptoms. You've done a great deal of work with Alzheimer's. Could you compare Alzheimer's as a uh, disease or condition with Parkinson's? Is one or the other easier or harder to address with regard to their symptoms? Um, yeah, I, I would say <clears throat> there is a mechanism that they have in common right down the line, and that has to do with the mitochondrial energy system. And so there's a brownout that happens in Alzheimer's disease, and there's a brownout that happens in Parkinson's disease. So on that kind of level, that the voltage of the body is just failing, um, there's no difference, and the treatments would be the same. You know, energy-related nutrients, uh, mitochondrial nutrients, uh, you know, exercise, uh, aerobic capacity, um, coconut oil, uh, thyroid hormone, hormone replacement therapy with testosterone in men or progesterone in women. These are kinds of things that would be universal to both sides of both diseases. The difference is, is that um, in Parkinson's disease, there's an, another factor. There's a kind of focal problem at the cellular level that causes one part of the brain to deteriorate. And you don't see that kind of thing in Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's tends to be distributed over many areas. There's all these different variations that happen because there can be focal issues involved in particular parts of the brain, each one of which has its own kind of diagnosis. But on the whole, the, the Alzheimer's disease affects a large part of the brain, and it's a cascade failure. In other words, the brain kind of turns from being fairly high-functioning to fairly low-functioning at a fairly short period of time, and you don't tend to see that in Parkinson's. Parkinson's is more of a, a continual, inexorable, long-term drift over, over periods of decades, <clears throat> and the symptoms really don't develop until a fairly late stage in the process. You can have half of your neurons die, and you don't necessarily have symptoms, but in, Parkinson's, in, in Alzheimer's disease, it's kind of like the neurons kind of all shut down at once. That makes sense? It sure does. So in terms of uh, addressing the two, are there things that people with Alzheimer's can do to get relatively quick relief, whereas people with Parkinson's can do similar things or things that really do help, but it takes it much longer to be able to see relief? Well, I mean, all of the things that can adversely affect your health can complicate Parkinson's disease. So if you have a B12 deficiency and Parkinson's disease, when you take B12, your Parkinson's disease symptoms are likely to partially resolve. You know, it's kind of like having, you know, two things go wrong at the same time, one of which is easy to fix and the other one of which is not. Um, and the same thing can happen with Alzheimer's disease. And so with Alzheimer's, you can say, okay, well, we've got 15 different potential systems that can go down, but in a particular person, we don't know if it's this five or that those three that are the ones that are involved. And so that's the real, you know, daunting challenge to a medical professional who's supposed to know the answers to everything is <clears throat> how do you relate to a client when you really have no way of measuring what's the broken system and how to go about fixing it. And the good news to the person with Alzheimer's is that 
it's a simple trial and error process that you can do at home where you can take different nutrients and you know just measure cognitive function either on a preventive basis if you're worried about getting it and you have a high risk apoe genotype or you can you know work these things one at a time with a relative that has alzheimer's disease and just observe from the from their memory or from their you know conversations that you're having with them uh, you know, how they forget, for example, how much they forget, how soon they forget, you can judge whether or not a particular intervention that hits a particular system is or is not helping that person. But Parkinson's disease is, um, all of those things that affect Alzheimer's disease can also affect Parkinson's. And there's a special kind of dementia called Parkinson's dementia because of that various kinds of things. But I don't look at the dementia as being um, necessarily a part of Parkinson's disease because there are lots of people with Parkinson's disease, advanced Parkinson's disease, that have extremely clear minds. So, you know, you may be unlucky and have dementia and Parkinson's disease both. But in my opinion, it's fairly easy to treat Alzheimer's disease and exceedingly difficult to treat Parkinson's disease because of that underlying problem that, we, that isn't just about the brownout of the energy systems. There's a deeper level of cellular stress that we just don't know what it is yet. Interesting. This is Robert Rogers from Parkinson's Recovery. You are listening to my pre-recorded interview with Stephen Folks, who is the CEO of the Cognitive Enhancement Research Institute in Menlo, California. I have a time frame I want to give to you, five days and 18 hours, and you ask, What's that about? And the answer is, it's the kickoff for the race against across America by Scott Lucart. I actually interviewed Scott and also Dr. Jay Alberts from the Cleveland Clinic. And Scott, in that particular radio show, talked all about the race that he's uh, going to be doing from San Diego, California, all the way over to Annapolis, Maryland. Again, the kickoff is in six days, uh, and that will be Wednesday, June the 17th. His website, where you can get additional information, is www.scottsbigride.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-S-B-I-G-R-I-D-E dot com. Why should you be interested? You, you're asking me. Uh, here's a man who's going to ride his bicycle across America. Well, first... Uh, it's interesting because it's an incredibly competitive uh, activity. There are only about 32 people who are accepted to do this, and um, it's uh, physically a grueling uh, exercise, to, uh, to be sure. Uh, Scott has a huge following. There are three vans that will follow him. You can go out uh, when he begins his trip uh, from San Diego on June the 17th and cheer him on. Uh, over the route, and they're going to report the uh, the uh, the course of his uh, ride uh, over the internet. So you'll be able to actually follow what he is doing. Why is Scott doing this? His brother has the symptoms of Parkinson's. His brother is in one of the vans that will be following Scott on his race across America. And um, if you are an individual that's always looking for good causes to uh, make uh, uh, charitable contributions that are tax-deductible, this is an opportunity for you to make a contribution for 
the research that Dr. Jay Alberts and his colleagues are doing at the Cleveland Clinic on the effects of exercise on the symptoms of Parkinson's. I just want to say that I think the, the research that they're doing at that particular clinic is groundbreaking and uh, it's literally going to revolutionize how we think about Parkinson's. They're discovering that the effects of exercise are comparable to the effects of dopamine. So instead of taking uh, supplements that help build out the do- build up the, the, the dopamine in our bodies, it looks like exercise does exactly the same thing. But they're actually looking at that using MRIs and other very sophisticated uh, research techniques. So. As you're listening to the next segment of my interview with Steve Folks, um, and if you're a multitasker, something that I must say I am not, you may want to just check in with the website and uh, see how you can actually follow Scott's race a- across America that, again, begins in uh, five days and 18 hours. My next segment of the interview with Steve Folks addresses uh, a number of fascinating topics and uh, some uh, some comments uh, that I've never heard anywhere, nor have I ever seen anywhere uh, in the Internet, in the research literature, you name it. Are you overwhelmed with having uh, too many choices regarding therapies? Uh, Steve addresses that question in this particular segment of the, uh, of the interview. Are you curious about the power grid of our brains, how it actually works? Again, he addresses that. And what about... The key role, get this, of not oxygen, but CO2. Have you ever thought about that? Well, he talks about that, and again, the second of four segments of the interview that I'm playing for you on the radio program today. This is Steve Folks from the uh, CERI Institute in Menlo, California. No, oh, wait a minute. I just clicked on the wrong one. I'm going to get you the right one right now. Some people I know who delve into what's now become uh a great volume of information of things people can do to get better from Parkinson's recovery, get overwhelmed by too many choices. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm into the 50th, 60th. I don't know what to do. And they kind of say, oh, my mind is just dizzying with uh, confusion. Yeah. Uh, is there a way to simplify this for people who say that? That is, are, is there a core set of vitamins or nutrients or minerals that they need to pay attention to in the very beginning uh, to do the kind of experimentation you just discussed? Uh, no, I don't think so. In other words, you know, some people with Parkinson's disease are going to have a blood coagulation problem that goes along with it, and when they take natokinase, their, all their symptoms are going to ease significantly. So, but in, unless you, until you try it, you just don't know that. So the the the, the the, the dilemma, the opportunity cost that people are, are bearing in looking at Annette's program, which has, what, 30 or 40 things on it. Quite a few. I mean, it's daunting. I mean, she used to spend, you know, 30 ducks a day. I was wondering about that. That must have been very expensive. Oh, yeah. You know, but luckily, you know, she had money, and so for her, it was never an issue of money. It was always an issue of the time and trouble it would take to explore something and try something. And so she would try things all the time and just make some kind of a judgment, usually, you know, kind of gut feeling of whether or not something was benefiting her or not. And this is, you know, I think the, the yardstick to use for people with opportunity costs is just to say, well, you know, all you have to do is one thing at a time. And whether you do your therapy, the therapy of the week, the therapy of the month, you know, it really doesn't matter as long as you just pick something and try it. 
And if you can measure some aspect of your performance, and the one that I tell people to measure is the one that most bothers them. Ah, right. You know, tremor, <laughs> handwriting, you know, um, you know, posture, walking, uh, freezing behaviors, you know, whatever it is, to focus on that symptom and rate it. You know, pick a scale, one to five, and every day you judge it, and you put it on your calendar, make a graph, whatever you do, and then every time you try something, you look to see, is that number going up, you know, getting worse, or is it going down, getting better, or can I not tell at all? And if you, if you employ a kind of draconian rule, if I don't get better, I don't spend my money on it, I don't spend my time on it, it actually comes down to a fairly simple program. <laughs> that does simplify it for people. But the problem is most people don't have that kind of a yardstick, and so they'll be taking all kinds of things on faith, and, you know, when it, when it gets to the second handful of pills, you know, you start to go, oh, no, do I really want to do this? You mentioned earlier mitochondrial uh, mechanisms that uh, are a factor with Parkinson's. Now, that's a, that's a mouthful, and I think a lot of people don't really know what that mechanism is. Could you explain to people what that's all about? Yeah. I've actually done several articles, uh, you know, trying to give people both verbal and uh, visual pictures of how the mitochondrial system works. And basically, mitochondria are little, you know, power plants in little blast furnaces inside our cells. Um, and what they do is they burn fuel and they generate <clears throat> energy for us. Uh, uh, ATP energy is the primary fuel that comes out of them, but there's actually a secondary fuel that most people don't think of as a fuel, which is called NADH, which can be described as reducing power, which is the opposite of oxidation power. And so we have these antioxidant defense systems that turn out to be the critical factor for both Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease, uh, mainly involving a substance called glutathione. And glutathione has sulfur in it, and sulfur is the pivot for all biology. Our entire you know, chemistry is defended by a sulfur defense system, and the sulfur intercepts all these free radicals and oxidizing agents and protects our cells from oxidative damage. And when this fails in Parkinson's disease, we get, you know, uh, apoptosis of the substantia nigra, uh, substantia nigra neurons, and in Alzheimer's disease, the attack on the sulfur pool causes the depolarization of the, 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 the material distribution system, the, the highway system of the brain um, disintegrates and falls apart. And the average neuron in the brain is, if you look at the width of a neuron, and you make it uh, analogous to, uh, or the, the width of the transportation system, these things called microtubules. If, you, if it's the, the same size as a two, if you make analogy to a two-lane highway, these things are stretched from San Diego to Maine. Whoa. <laughs> That's how long these things are. And so if these transportation systems, you know, in a neuron, you've got these long branches, you know, it's highly unusual, you know, structures of these cells. If you can't move material, you don't have a road system, you don't have a truck, so that means you're going to move produce from Maine, you know, lobsters from Maine to San Diego, and, you know, lettuce from San Diego to Maine. 
you're going to do it by putting backpacks on people and they're going to walk from California to Maine. That's not going to work very well. <laughs> you know? And that's the problem that you have in the Alzheimer's brain. These, these transportation systems, which are these long microtubules, have these little motor proteins that attach at one end and drag the sack of material all the way down to the other end of this thing. Um, they stop working. And, of course, the brain has a catastrophic decrease in performance when this happens, which is exactly what you see in Alzheimer's disease. People are fine, and all of a sudden, you know, they deteriorate into, they can't remember what's going on. And um, in Parkinson's disease, the, uh, the, the sulfur system is different because what, it, what it's doing is protecting against a long-term kind of cumulative damage. Uh, Substantia nigra is named nigra, which means black, because when you do an autopsy on the brain and you look at it, it's black. <laughs> mm -hmm. There's a pigment in those particular cells. It turns out that that pigment is caused by the polymerization of compounds that relate to dopamine, which is the neurotransmitter, in those particular neurons. And this pigment is called melanin, and it's black, and it's produced from that neurotransmitter. And so it's that's why those particular neurons die is because the antioxidant defense system that's defending that neurotransmitter becomes compromised and so that those particular cells become stressed and then shut down and then die. Mm. So it all comes down to antioxidants and those antioxidants are defended by this NADH that comes out of the mitochondria and they're defended by the ATP that comes out of the mitochondria. So the mitochondria are kind of like the power grid you know, for for our country, but that's what it is that they are that for our brains. When you talk about uh, neurons, uh, a lot of people think about that. They think about neural networks. Uh, so they think about that in the conceptual sense. What does it look like physically? That is, what is it, if you were to just spread a neuron out on the table, uh, would you see something hard and, and thick? Would it be sticky? Would it be mucus? Would it be watery? What, is, what does a neuron really look like? Uh, I don't know. An earthworm? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're, they're kind of uh, gelatinous. I mean, the brain is about, is more protein, uh, more fat than protein or, or you know, carb or, or, or collagen or anything like that. So it's very greasy, um, a lot of membranes. It's fairly soft and squishy. Um, you know, it, it's, um, you know, I'd it's, say it's, it's probably more analogous to fat tissue than anything, but it's got this microstructure. I mean, you're talking about, you know, thousands of trillions of neurons and, uh, you know, trillions upon trillions upon trillions of, of connections between those neurons. I mean, it's the ultimate in complexity. And this is, this is why the energy issue that I mentioned with these mitochondria is so critical because the brain, it's only like 3% of the body's mass, but it consumes 20% of the body's energy. So this is because, you know, these long, you know, spindly cells with all of these branchings all throughout the brain, all of the, the, the energy has to be delivered via a transport system rather than just have a round globular cell, kind of like, you know, a, a little glob of jello, where, you know, if you put a colorant onto it, it'll just kind of spread, you know, passively, 
into the jello diffuse gradually. You just can't do that with neurons. The, the, the topologies, these branchings, are just way too complex. So, you know, it's kind of like if you took a tree. It has one trunk with all of these branches, and you took five trees, and you uprooted them, and you poked them into each other in the branches. So all the trunks were on the outside, and all their branches were penetrating into each other by jamming the tops of the trees together. That's what the brain would be like, that kind of complexity. All these branches and leaves touching each other, but connected to different trunks. That's a beautiful analogy. On the Cognitive Enhancement Research Institute website, the CERI.com website, there's a, uh, a page uh, that has just a, a number of different resources uh, that are specific to Parkinson's. Could you tell people a bit about what's there and what information they can find? Yeah, when, when Siri was operating in, in its publishing mode and we had, you know, a robust organization, um, we wanted people to look at the website and get an idea from it, uh, both the breadth of the quality of our information and the focus and depth of the quality of our information. And so we picked Down syndrome and Parkinson's disease and GHB as examples of the depth. And we just, you know, everything that we did on those subjects, we could put them on that site and then that page so that people could see just you know, how detailed this got. You know, they could ask questions and find and that we, you know, we dealt with drug-drug interactions with this and, and nutrient, you know, effects on here and how you distinguish between people who have Parkinson's disease who tolerate alcohol and people who don't and, you know, just very, very esoteric information and, and other parts of the website where we would have an article on, you know, how to live with alcohol, you know, talking about seasonal drinking, you know, like Christmas time. People get together with their families, and you know, sometimes people you know would, wouldn't associate with their families if they weren't related <laughs> to them. <laughs> and, and they drink, and they they eat you know sugar, and they do all kinds of things. And and so it would be like you know, how do you survive the holiday stress, and you know, how do you survive you know the cross-linking effects of alcohol. And so we would have other parts in the website where we have a breadth of uh, information to show people all the variety of things like. You know, using carbon dioxide as a smart drug. You know, it's like, what, what's that about? It just sounds so bizarre that carbon dioxide could be a smart drug and would help your brain function. But it's really true. It's a critical aspect of how your brain works. And so if you have Parkinson's disease and a CO2 deficiency, you're going to have more symptoms than you do or Alzheimer's disease with a CO2 deficiency than if you didn't have that CO2 deficiency. And so we talk about, well, how do you, can you figure that out? How do you, can you know? If you push your CO2 up, what happens to your symptoms? If you push it down, what happens to your symptoms? So in a sense, this is all about giving people tools that they can use in their lives to figure it out for themselves, since basically you know, the medical profession doesn't give people this kind of information. Oh, how, how absolutely fascinating. So are you pushing up and down CO2 by breathing into a plastic bag? <laughs> how do you, that's how do that's you? one way, yeah. I mean, that's the, the typical way that most people do it. But when you do that, you become depleted of oxygen. So we've also told people that's one way to do it. Another way, you can hold your breath. Um, there's also something called power breathing where you inhale slowly for four seconds, hold your breath for four seconds, and then you exhale through pursed lips or vocalization, 
chanting, singing uh, for 16 seconds, and that drives the CO2 back into your system again. And since Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease are both associated with a decreased metabolism, you know, your voltage is low, you're not producing as much energy as people, other people, your CO2 is also going to be low because your CO2 is your energy. It, you know, carbon burns with oxygen to make CO2. I'm going to uh, flip the tape on my end here. You can edit that out if you want. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And so, um, you know, that power breathing, you know, inhale for four seconds, hold your breath for four seconds, exhale for 16 seconds through pressure, through your lips or through your vocal cords, that increases your CO2. And you do that for five minutes, and your CO2 could, could be, you know, 50% higher in, in that short a period of time. Uh, people with a tendency towards hiccups or panic attacks, that's often triggered by a CO2 deficiency. And what's the, the, the folk cure for hiccups? is you hold your breath and somebody feeds you a glass of water. Yeah, you know, right. It's like holding your breath drives your CO2 up and it cures the hiccups. You know? <laughs> um, and so that it can be quite useful to find out, you know, is this a complicating factor? And you know, because the energy systems of the body, you know, have all of these support elements that are involved in them. So, for example, blood flow. Your cells cannot burn energy if they can't get the energy, uh, like, you know, glucose, or fat through your bloodstream, and oxygen delivered through your bloodstream. Uh, oxygen delivered through your lungs. CO2 carried from the cells back to your lungs. If you can't do that, you're going to build up too much CO2, and that's going to inhibit your metabolism. You know, thyroid hormone, testosterone, progesterone, the influence of estrogen, which counteracts the thyroid hormone, testosterone, and progesterone. So these are the hormones uh, are like the the on switch for your metabolism and the estrogen is like the off switch, um, these are in a balance with each other. And, you know, doctors, it would be great if you could get them to assess these kinds of things for you. And there are some alternative doctors that do exactly that for people. But, you know, the average person out there who has Parkinson's disease probably doesn't even hear of these options. I think that's true. You're listening to an interview with Stephen Folks, the CEO of the Cognitive Enhancement Research Institute in Menlo, California. This is Robert Rogers from Parkinson's Recovery. You can get updates on uh, what I'm learning through all of the interviews that I have every week in the newsletter, which, of course, is free. Uh, sign up, and the one thing I want everybody to know is I certainly do not give, sell, or in any way convey uh, that list to anybody in the world, and it's uh, the identities are uh, all you really do is put your email address in. There's actually no name uh, that's also entered, so everything is protected in the autoresponder that I used called A Weber. My goal in each radio program is to be able to offer information that can give individuals with the symptoms of Parkinson's relief. And uh, my guess is, and what Steve has talked about so far, there's a good chance I've accomplished my goal. But if I haven't, in the next segment of the interview where he talks about NADH and also about the issue of iron 
and the toxicity of iron in our bodies that we know contributes to the symptoms of Parkinson's, he's got a suggestion in this next piece that is awesome. It's uh, something you can do for free, and it may actually save your life. When you talk about oxidative uh, issues in the body with regard to Parkinson's, uh, is there any specific uh, recommendations that you would put at the top of the list that people ought to do? You know, drink a glass of blackberry juice every day or anything that would uh, be recommended in light of all the research you've done? Well, um, a couple of things that I would say are statistically anomalous. One is NADH. Uh, the average person, you know, one out of a hundred people will notice something from NADH. I mean, maybe not even that many, um, because NADH in somebody with a normal metabolism is already sufficient, and adding more is like, you know, filling up your gas tank after you've gone ten miles. You know, it just doesn't make any difference in how your car works. Um, but in in Parkinson's disease, I'd say the positive response is probably forty percent. So there's something that I would put at the top of the list just because, you know, there's several aspects of mitochondrial metabolic misfunction that are known to be associated with NADH that are in the scientific literature and clinically such a greater number of people respond. Ah, now NADH can uh, be purchased at a health food store or do you need a prescription for that? No, it's, uh, it's available. It's not available by prescription. So you have to get it from your health food store. And it's like a, it comes in pill forms, I guess? Yeah. It comes in sublingual pills. It comes in um, uh, enterically coated pills, either, either way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's a relatively pricey thing, considering the fact that it's just an activated form of vitamin B3. And B3, you know, one gram of NADH sells for the price of a kilogram of, of, of niacin or niacinamide. So, you know, it's very expensive and tends to be a higher expense item if it's on your list. But but th- that's the nice thing about testing something like this out. If you, you take NADH and you have no improvement in your memory, your cognitive function, your tremor, your freezing behaviors, your body temperature doesn't change, then it's, it's like, well, okay, that's it. You bought one bottle, you tried it out, it doesn't work, give it up. <laughs> Don't waste your money. Don't waste your time. And, you know, to really test it, you know, take one pill the first day and then two the second and then four the third and then eight the next and then 16 and then the rest of the entire bottle. You know, I mean, it's like this stuff is so non-toxic that the only way you could kill yourself would be to be a millionaire and go bankrupt. (laughs) (laughs) So NADH is sort of at the top of the list. Is there something next? Well, I would say one of the things that is uh, that potentially could be a critical factor in Parkinson's disease, although it may not help in terms of Parkinson's therapy. So I would also tell anybody who is has Parkinson's disease to talk to their, you know, their their children and their grandchildren and their nieces and nephews about having um, men get their iron assessed, their iron storage assessed clinically early in life so that if they're accumulating iron, they can offload that iron by donating blood to the Red Cross. Um, This is one of the things that is uh, sadly underappreciated is how iron toxicity 
um, can be a, a cause of heart disease in men, particularly, and in heart disease in postmenopausal women. When women stop menstruating, they start accumulating iron like men do in their 20s. And so 20 to 30 years of iron accumulation can actually get to the point where you start to spill the iron, and then your entire health starts to deteriorate very, very rapidly, so including I, your cognitive function. So actually donating blood to the Red Cross can be a huge benefit to a person. Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, when I was doing volunteer work for the, the AIDS community, um, they did a study where they were giving antibodies from people with high antibody counts to people who had low antibody counts. So they were transferring antibodies. And the people receiving the antibodies actually didn't get any benefit at all. But the people donating them actually got benefit. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is a common thing. I give blood, you know, three times a year, you know, four times a year regularly and have for a long period of time because I know that this is the best way to get rid of iron. And so if, if, if you're male and you're, you know, in your 30s, ask your doctor to give you a ferritin test, a serum ferritin test. And if you want, you know, a transferrin saturation and a TIBC, which is a total iron binding capacity test, they're all relatively cheap. They just tend not to be included in a regular annual physical because the iron change, your iron status changes so slowly over time. Normal blood tests that you get done by your doctor during your physical will measure the iron in hemoglobin but it doesn't measure the stored iron, and the hemoglobin iron and the stored iron don't track with each other and oftentimes have nothing to do with each other. And so when you're anemic, you can actually have dangerously high levels of iron, but it's not getting from your storage form into the hemoglobin. And when the doctor puts you on iron supplements, this can actually threaten your life. Oh, wow. And so you need to measure your storage form of iron to know whether or not you need to take B12 and folic acid to solve your anemia, or whether you need to take iron to solve your anemia. And in men, this is critical because men, you know, we just don't menstruate, so all the, uh, the only way we lose iron is to go out and fight wars, climb trees, you know, <laughs> get, you get a, a, a braided, you know, <laughs> sliced and diced. And in this modern society, that happens so frequently that, you know, um, so, you know, all kidding aside. <laughs> Maybe this, it's not a problem, but... <laughs> you get this ferritin test, and if you come from a family with high heart attack rates in the males in their 50s and 60s, you will probably see that your ferritin will be high and just start giving blood. And if you have, you know, HIV infection or hepatitis infection and they won't take your blood, just insist that every time you go see your doctor, the doctor takes a pint from you. <laughs> That's you know? and, and And they just throw it away. And, and so you just offload that blood. And every time you do that, it drops your iron down a notch. And so your iron doesn't build up to the point that it causes a heart attack and you drop dead. Wow. And, and so there are high iron accumulators. It runs in families. It's genetic, and this correlates with, you know, heart disease and something called hemochromatosis, which is the clinical form. But I'm of the opinion that a lot of people die from a kind of subclinical hemochromatosis. And since iron toxicity is involved in Parkinson's disease, Men need to get this assessed, and postmenopausal women need to get this to assessed to see if maybe part of their long-term program should be offloading iron. You mentioned that as a matter of routine, you give blood three times a year. Uh, is that just preventative, or have you determined that uh, you've got evidence of high levels of iron in your own system? 
No, um, that doesn't run in my family, and I don't. I just do it preventatively. So it's a preventative. That's, that's yeah. what I was thinking. It's just a purely preventative uh, strategy so that, yeah. that that does not create problems for you down the line. Well, I also look at, you know, biology in terms of rhythm. That, you know, this is one of the philosophical things that you can see that go back through, you know, Ayurvedic and, 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 and traditional Christian practice. And, and a lot of religious orders have... You know, the, the whole issue of rhythm in life and rhythm in routine and stuff is a very important part of the, their spirituality and the cultivation of spiritual connection to God or, or their body or whatever, whatever their, their, their goal is. Um, and I recognize that um, there's, a, there's an advantage to oscillation in biology. And so, you know, in humans we see, for example, um, there's something called aerobic anaerobic oscillation that happens every day. So during the day we're aerobically dominant, at night we're anaerobically dominant, and during the day our urine pH will be about 5.5, and at night it'll be about 7.5. Mm. And this is when this stops, you get cancer. And so rhythm is biology is all about rhythm. Sleeping, you sleep, you sleep every night. If you don't sleep, your your personality and your mind disintegrate. You know, sleep deprivation is so nasty that they use it to torture people. Um, so what happens with Parkinson's disease? What happens with Alzheimer's disease? You get inflammation, you stop sleeping efficiently. So I look at, you know, mental, I mean, this is, this is my theme for SERI. Uh, the biggest thing, uh, theme that I push is that the mind is, in a sense, the most sensitive organ of the body to biological dysfunction and, and destabilization and that if you pay attention to how good your mind is and how well it's working, you're going to learn that something is wrong through a decrease in your cognitive function years before you'll see it in any other physical measurement. And that's common. And so, you know, playing video games uh, and, and recording your scores, uh, timing yourself with crossword puzzles, uh, playing a duplicate bridge, uh, you know, there's all kinds of ways that you can gather information about how well your mind is working. Uh, concentration, the game that you play as a kid where two kids will sit at a table with the cards on the table and take turns turning two of them over at a time. If they pair off, they get to keep them. If they don't turn, pair up, they put them back face down. And then the next kid takes the turn. If you remember where those cards are, you get more, you end up with more cards and you win the game. Well, you can play that against yourself just with a stopwatch. How long does it take you to take 52 cards off the table, pairing them up two at a time? It's just measuring your short-term and medium-term memory. If you do that every day, um, you're going to now have a, a, a real-time tracking of how your brain is working, and that's going to tell you when something's not right. I'm then doing the exercise of pairing up the cards every day, and all of a sudden I notice after eight years that I'm uh, not as successful as I was the previous year. So. I've got an indicator that my something's going on with my body. What do I do then? Um, you take NADH, and you see if the trend reverses. And then if that doesn't work, the next week you take uh, B1. And the next week you take lipoic acid. And then, you know, flip a coin. Pick one of the mitochondrial nutrients. Uh, uh, try hormone replacement therapy. Uh, try exercise. Uh, try a negative ion generator. Uh, try, you know, hypnosis, uh, acupuncture. I mean, <laughs> there's, there's, try a try a wheat-free diet. <laughs> Something's gonna work. Just keep experimenting. <laughs> exactly, and and so in a sense, what this is 
you're creating a biofeedback loop where your brain is telling you through your body what's right and what's right, wrong in terms of your choices that you're making. I mean, it's an incredibly simple system. To what extent does helplessness have anything to do with a person's ability to get well? Uh, I think it's very important, not only from the perspective of, you know, that hopefulness and, and a belief in the efficacy of what one is doing, that one can make a difference, is important not only for treatment but for prevention. It, in my opinion, is probably a really key factor. I mean, nothing is worse than, than you know, destroying a child's ability when they're learning that they can't learn to, to put the, plant that seed in their mind or to go through a public school system where the only goal is that you attend and that you don't make trouble, <laughs> you know, that your curiosity is not a factor and that learning is not a factor. I mean, these are really, you know, deleterious because they interfere with what's called the neuroendocrine uh, system. And this is, this is a way that your brain and mind uh, are integrated and how your mind and brain are integrated. So your mind is connected to your brain, your brain is connected to your body, and so your, your mind has the, in, the potential to influence how your body works and how it heals and how it doesn't get disease and how it ages gracefully and all of these kinds of things are, you know, can be cultivated and so if you're in an abusive relationship or you're being negatively reinforced or you, um, you're, you believe that an Alzheimer's diagnosis or a Parkinson's diagnosis is, you know, a, a death sentence, um, you are going to deteriorate more rapidly than somebody who then says, you know, well, you know, tough luck, doctor. I'm not taking Cinemet. I'm going to try all these other things, and I'm going to do Tai Chi in my local park, and... I'm going to take a vacation to Paris, and I'm just going to do these things that I've been putting off for my entire life where, you know, I'm going to paint pictures. Whatever it is that turns you on, whatever it is that connects you to yourself or to, your, your, to God or to your community or to your family, that you nurture that stuff so that your neuroendocrine system doesn't age prematurely and that you're, you're able to draw upon the natural healing properties of your body. Is it then primarily important what choices are made specifically in this experimentation program that you recommend, or is it just the trying of it all that makes the difference? Yeah, I'd say the latter. In other words, it really doesn't matter what you do. If you're, if you're actively involved in bettering yourself, then you will get better. I mean, this is the whole placebo response. I mean, what is it, 30% of the benefit of a drug is placebo. And so, you know, I mean, they're talking about the difference between 30% cure from a placebo and a 40% cure from a drug, if they're lucky. And maybe it's 30 to 35% or maybe 30 to 50%. But the, 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 the effect of a placebo is, um, you know, awesome. And that, it comes from that belief, that attachment. And so I think a lot of spiritual healing is focused on this. I think a lot of people who um, can, you know, enter a, a, a spiritual discipline involving things like transcendental meditation or even fasting, although, in my opinion, fasting is, is a good short-term therapy for spirituality and for health and not a long-term one because, you know, 
there's, there's a downside to starvation, and if you fast for too long, that starvation mechanism and defense mechanisms um, will kick in, and they'll, they'll drop your energy systems. And with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, they're already too low, and so you're just going to aggravate the brownout effect. But, you know, one of the benefits that happens from fasting is that you go into fat-burning mode. And fat-burning mode generates more ATP than carbo-burning mode, it generates more NADH than carbo-burning mode. And so in that interim period, when you switch into fat-burning mode and you, you, your body energy systems don't yet turn themselves off because you're in starvation mode for too long a period of time, you have all kinds of healing found. And so this is another theme that I you know, talk to people about for cancer and heart disease is cultivating fat-burning metabolism, going into ketosis and out of ketosis and, 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 and getting better and better and more and more efficient about the ketosis so that one doesn't turn the test papers brown ever, that one only gets you know, the pink color because one is so efficient at burning fat and that that energy enhancement that you're getting will oppose the, the trends that are involved in, in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. So you don't want to go at it for too long of a period of time because then it uh, it goes downhill. Right, and uh, that's uh, you know for example um, uh, one of the things that doctors ignore is is the conversion of thyroid hormone. So when the thyroid when the, when you go to a doctor and you say you know my body temperature is down, I'm de I'm depressed, I'm not sleeping well, my body temperature is low, um, I'm just fatigued all the time, you know, all of these classic symptoms of hypothyroidism, <coughs> or as I describe it, hypometabolism, just low metabolism, sluggish metabolism, um, the doctor will measure something called TSH, which is the neuroendocrine signal for the thyroid system. So it's what your brain thinks is the right amount of thyroid hormone. And that's like, you know, your house is freezing, so you call the furnace repairman, and they come in and they check your thermostat, and they go, nope, nothing's wrong with your furnace. <laughs> Live with it. You know? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Well, so the, 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 the actual, if you're lucky, your doctor will measure T4, which is one of the two hormones that's produced, the T3 and T4, that have the most thyroid activity, and it's the one that's produced to the largest degree. You know, 85% um, of, your, of your thyroid hormone is T4, and so the doctor measures that one. <clears throat> and, you know, so a minority of doctors measure T4. Well, the problem with T4 is... It, it really doesn't tell you what's going on with your metabolism because it can either convert to T3, which is four times more potent, <laughs> four times, oh. or it can be converted into reverse T3, which has no thyroid activity at all. <laughs> so it's like, you know, supercharging your motor or punching a hole in your gas tank. And the doctors don't measure that. So how can you know whether you actually have hypometabolism from you know, inadequate thyroid hormone if you don't assess your T3 reverse T3 ratio. And I've, I've run across two clients in decades that have ever had their T3 and reverse T3 assessed. And then there's a secondary problem beyond that where the response of the tissues to your T3 or T4, that's not assessed. And there's no good test for that. And so how, it's like, you know, how can you tell whether your grandfather is able to hear you if all you do is measure how loud you're talking, 
you know. You don't know your grandfather's deaf or not and whether he's actually able to hear you unless you actually do some kind of loop where you're connecting your grandfather's response to what you say to him to so that you know that you, he's heard you. And the same thing is true with thyroid hormone. If you don't get energy, your thyroid hormone isn't doing its job. And so there's something called a thyroid trial that you can do where you just take thyroid hormone, even though your tests may be all perfectly textbook normal or maybe they're low normal, you just start taking thyroid hormone. And you look to see, does your body temperature go up? Does your cognitive performance improve? Um, does your strength go up? Does your stamina go up? Does your feelings of well-being improve? And all of these are indications that you were deficient in thyroid and the added thyroid is now making you healthier and making things work better. And that's evidence that all of this testing that could have been done that wasn't done uh, really isn't telling you what you really need to know. That's quite fascinating. So much of what you say recommends an experimental approach, and you're using yourself as the subject. So right. you uh, basically yep. try something, see how it works, and either drop it or keep it. So if we have two individuals, and the first individual says, well, I've got to spend another three months evaluating option A, B, C, and D, because I'm not sure which one is best for me, versus the second person who says, well, I've got option A, B, C, and D. I don't know which one is going to be best, and I don't care. I'm just going to randomly choose one and start with it. You're saying the second person has actually got the better strategy. If they're basically a person that goes out and says, well, I'm going to try it and see if it's going to work. I would say not. I mean, on one level, you're right. But there's also something called, that's the opportunity cost thing, you know. But there's another process, another issue that's called um, uh, cognitive dissonance, (laughs) okay? And so you have to do things in ways that are comfortable with whatever your process is. And this can be really awkward with Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease because, you know, oftentimes with Alzheimer's disease, your mind is so compromised as a person who's the patient that somebody else is making the decision for you. And that's oftentimes a family. And different people in the family will have different criteria for what is the proper decision-making process to go through to become comfortable with whatever it is you're about to do. Um, You know, I, for example, am perfectly comfortable trying all kinds of things, and I've been experimenting on myself, taking nutrients and trying herbs and, you know, just you name it, you know, half of the stuff I've written about in my life, I've actually taken it personally, you know. So, you know, for me, that is comfortable. But somebody else can look at me and go, you're nuts, (laughs) you know, just plain nuts. (laughs) And so you have to be true to yourself. You have to be true to your spirituality. You have to be true to your knowledge. You have to be true to your emotions. You have to operate in concert with yourself and in a social context, if that's involved, if there's more than one person, you have to be tolerant that somebody else's decision-making process may not be the same as yours. This is Robert Rogers from Parkinson's Recovery. You're listening to a pre-recorded interview with Steve Folks, who is the CEO of the Cognitive Enhancement Research Institute in Menlo, California. I think I want to also recommend to each of you to uh, track your symptoms using the Symptom Tracker. It's free, it's easy to register, and you can go into the Symptom Tracker, answer the standard 39 questions from the Parkinson's Disease uh, Questionnaire 39, 
and actually get a baseline of where you're at today. And then as you begin to do your own experimentation, you can go back in, answer the same questionnaire, and get a tracking of how well you are doing in terms of your recovery program. It's called Symptom Tracker, and you can get access to that by simply going to the main Parkinson's Recovery website, and that particular URL address is Parkinson's, the the word P-A-R-K-I-N-S-O-N-S, and then together with that, the word recovery, R-E-C-O-V-E-R-Y dot com, and you'll see on the main page there's an icon there for symptom tracker. There's not a good explanation there that I have, but I can tell you that it'll always be there, it'll always be free, and it'll always be a way that you can track how you are progressing in your recovery program. The final and the last uh, part of my interview with Steve, folks, is actually quite fascinating. Uh, he gives us some basic information about how we can contact him and, um, and about his website. But he's also uh, discussing what he's up to recently. He's invented a nanotechnology to, get this, mine gold that does not harm the environment. And when I got through listening to his discussion uh, about this, which is not directly related to Parkinson's, I really thought to myself, my heavens, I wonder if he's got the answer to the financial challenges that states that have gold are now confronting, states like California. Knowing... uh uh, something about your your current activities and, and your history. You clearly are a pioneer and an experimenter and an inventor, and you've got uh, a number of uh, interesting projects going. Could you talk a little bit about those? Uh, yeah. Um, when I went to school, <laughs> it was great. I, I went to Reed College, which is kind of like the West Coast Ivy League college, you know, really challenging environment. Uh, top-notch uh, educational opportunity and you know learned how to think and how to how to you know investigate things and and uh, uh, you know it was a wonderful experience and I went through a program of organic chemistry but I didn't become a practicing organic chemist I, I went sideways into nutrition my grandfather died of Alzheimer's disease while I was in college so I went to look out at what my opportunities were, and gerontology at that point in time was all about how do you more and more efficiently warehouse people, and that just, you know, that was like, you know, the evil side of <laughs> gerontology, <laughs> and so I decided, I started looking at mechanisms of Alzheimer's disease, and I spent, you know, 30 years working at it, and it wasn't until 2001 that I ran across the definitive work that gave me the insight to know what Alzheimer's disease was all about and how you can prevent it and reverse it. But during that time, I was doing nutrition, um, you know, doing consultations, product design, dietary supplements, um, you know, advising people and companies about, you know, their programs and, and this kind of thing. And in, 90, in, in uh, 1990, uh, two, two of my colleagues wrote a book called Smart Drugs and Nutrients, was you know very successful and and one of the authors went on Larry King Live and you know so it's just like whoa this is people are really interested in this stuff you know my bread and butter and they're they're going for it so in in '92 I started Sari 
and started put, codifying all of this insights into how the brain works and how the body systems work with the brain and, and health mechanisms of nutrition, and, you know, how does the body work, how do you give it what it wants, how do you take, keep it away from things that, that poison it, you know, these kinds of things. And, and so, you know, from, that's kind of a left turn from, from chemistry, from organic chemistry, and then into, into these things, and then to medicine is another left turn. And so I was not going in this direction. Well, a company hired me. It was doing biotech research, and they hired me, and they gave me a problem that took me back to my original chemistry days, and I invented a polymer. And I didn't know that I had invented a polymer. I figured, you know, here's a polymer. This is a solution. This is going to work for you guys, you know. You'd find somebody to buy it from them. And it turns out it was new, and there's no patents on it. It's not in the literature. It's not, you know, I mean, it's just it's, it's a new invention. So, you know, we, we patented this thing, and then, you know, turns out the company, you know, that I was working for, we um, didn't want to develop it, so I bought the technology back and started another company to, to develop it, and so that's what I've been doing. You know, I'm now back on my original course <laughs> of what I did back in the 70s. <laughs> I'm now doing that again, doing nanotechnology development with these nanostructured polymers that are actually kind of an inspiration from biology. So I took the my knowledge of how biology does structure and took some of those biochemical features of biology and added them to industrial polymer backbones to make a an industrial polymer that has the self-assembly capabilities of biological polymers. Wow. I mean, it's just so simple. And the core invention was a one-atom analog of Kevlar, which is DuPont's, you know, superfiber for bulletproof vests and stuff like this. And, um, you know, they... It's just you know really amazing stuff and and one atom change and DuPont didn't invent it they didn't patent it I mean it's like how could somebody not see this it's so <laughs> obvious to me I mean somebody told me this problem and three weeks later I have this invention it, it took me three weeks one day a week three days to invent this thing it was like sitting there anybody you know I looked at it and said anybody could see that this is going to work and nobody had seen it so and that's what I've been doing, and we now have a core new materials company that we're doing how to use these in industrial polymers to, you know, build nanostructured little parts. And we have a company working on applying these nanostructured materials to batteries to make you know more uh, efficient and uh, uh, lower heat batteries, so longer lasting batteries. That might apply to electric cars then. Yes, and and personal electronics too. But the the, the 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 application that absolutely everybody's focused on now is transportation. You know, cars, vehicles that can become the batteries are efficient enough that the weight of the battery is not you know going to limit your car to 20 miles or 40 miles. Um, and then the third company is is about using nanotechnology uh, to mine gold. Uh, in a way that's ecologically friendly, so it doesn't destroy the value of land when you mine the gold, that you can extract the gold that would otherwise take cyanide, but you can do it using compounds that are, you know, biodegradable, that, that won't, you know, poison the land. And, you know, that's because California is in deep financial doo-doo, and uh, it's sitting on 90% of the gold that was originally here in the, in the, during the gold rush, it's still sitting in the ground in California. 
and California badly needs to get that gold out of the ground so it has a chance of balancing <laughs> its budget. <laughs> so you are sitting on the financial solution to the problems that California and the rest of the country face, it sounds like. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, better mousetraps all around. Yes, yes. Now, how if uh, we've talked about so many subjects, uh, how is somebody who might want to get in touch with you, how would they best do that? Well, you know, I think that the Seri website, Seri.com, C-E-R-I.com, is a really good way to kind of uh, immerse yourself in the kind of ideas and concepts. Um, it's, uh, you know, so it's, it's a good thing to get familiar with it. And people can also get directly in touch with me. I have uh, my nanopolymer business um, uh, phone number that I can give out, and I have the Seri um, uh, phone number that I can give out. I can also give out my email address if people want to communicate, you know, um, directly with me, you know, by that method. That do, would work. Do you want to do that now? or Sure. Yeah. Um, email address is uh, Fowkes, F-O-W-K-E-S, which is my last name, at C-E-R-I dot com. <laughs> Talk about simple. And the phone number at Seri is uh, 650-321-C-E-R-I. So that's pretty easy for people to get to. And if they want to talk to me about nanotechnology, it's uh, 650-321-6670. You may get a call from uh, a few people who want to know about getting gold out of the ground in California. Uh, <laughs> you also may get uh, calls from people who really like to uh, see if they could get a consultation from you, you know, because mm -hmm. you're just so knowledgeable in this area. Now, do you still do consultations for people? I do. Um, as I have time to do them. Um, so, uh, you know, I probably at any given time will have uh, a dozen clients or something that are consulting with me on different issues. Um, so I'm pretty picky about who I take on. But, you know, mainly I'm looking for people who like the self-care options. They, they like being in charge of their lives. They like knowing, you know, what the decision that's being made and the advice that they're being given by their doctor, you know, what's the context of that and what does it really mean? Um, so they're, you know, what I call self-determinate uh, people, people with uh, a high um, self-esteem and a belief that they can make a difference in whatever their issue is and a willingness to do things on their own, you know, to, you know, take supplements and to measure themselves and to read stuff and ask questions and, and, uh, uh, and, and, you know, those kinds of traits. When we talked earlier, which was not recorded, you, you told me a quite fascinating study uh, that really examined uh, helplessness with animals and, and how there was an experiment done to see to what extent uh, constraints would have an effect on, on their health. Could you... Uh, could you explain that little study for people as sort of a yeah. way of concluding our discussion? It comes down to the issue of helplessness. And so if you grab an animal, the animal freaks out and wants to get away, struggles. If you release the animal when it's still struggling, it's left with the message that struggle leads to a solution. That's, you know, hopefulness. And if you hold on to the animal until it stops struggling and let it go, the message that it pertained is that struggle is useless and there's nothing that they can do to escape the, the capture, the torment, whatever it is that the grabbing uh, constitutes. And so if you look at those two animals, you find that 
the animal that you let go before it stops struggling, that animal will live an almost normal lifespan. And the animal that you grab and hold on to it until it's, it's helpless and stops struggling, that animal will die very young. And so that message is about, you know, the, 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 the belief that your action is actually going to make a difference, that, that doing something is better than not doing something. Being proactive is better than being passive. Um, you can look at it, exercise is better than being a couch potato. You can look at it as reading is better than, than just, you know, randomly deciding things on your own. And, and uh, you know, there's a whole different set of spectrums of, of behaviors and stuff that are associated with that. Um, but I also have seen this in clients. I did, during my uh, HIV-positive volunteer days, those people who were developing AIDS, they were going from HIV positive to AIDS, who would then go off and seek the cure of the month, you know, cucumber extracts or uh, BHT or, um, you know, acupuncture or, you know, selenium supplements. And it didn't matter what they were going after, you know, taking uh, antifungal drugs. They would just, you know, go off and, and just and look at the literature and figure out something and then go after it. Those people live for years. Um, and the people who just accepted the doctor's advice and took the, uh, the nucleoside drugs um, and passively cooperated with the system, they died young. And that told me that attitude was the key issue because it wasn't what therapy was chosen. It, was, it could be anything that would, could be as flaky as you wanted to that still seemed to significantly accept, extend their lifetime, their survival, even double it or triple it. And so that taught me that, you know, you, you need to believe in what you're doing. You have certainly uh, motivated me to take some action. I, I've got on my uh, list several things I need to do personally. I've got to make an appointment to go give blood this week. <laughs> so <laughs> I want to tell you thank you very much. I know this is going to be a genuine inspiration to many, many people who listen and who also read uh, this discussion. So I want to thank You're you. You're welcome, and we should do it again. <laughs> we, we will let's set the intention to have a follow-up uh, discussion because I know there will be many other questions that will follow. So thank yeah, you and, so much. And if you have, you know, your, your community that's going to be listening to this, uh, you may get some specific feedback and some specific questions that can allow me to focus into subjects that I just kind of skimmed over in kind of this, uh, you know, overview of... <laughs> Right. What I'm thinking we should do is uh, is issue the uh, this discussion so people can see it, and then we'll uh, schedule a teleseminar, and we'll have people send in questions, and we'll be able to go from there, because I know there'll be a lot of specific follow-ups that people will want to pursue with you. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. Okay. Thank you so much. Okay. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. So that's the final part of my interview with Steve Folks, the CEO of the Cognitive Enhancement Research Institute in Menlo, California. Uh, he has agreed to uh, be a guest on one of our future radio programs, so you'll be able to actually ask whatever questions you might have of him live. And as you can see, he is truly a remarkably knowledgeable individual who has incredibly helpful suggestions to individuals who have the symptoms of Parkinson's. So my my thanks and gratitude to uh, Steve Folks for, for participating in the Parkinson's Recovery Program. I also want to encourage everyone to um, to 
to visit Scott Lucart's website. He's the one who's going to be riding his bicycle across the United States of America beginning five days and 18 hours from now in the Race Across America. You can uh, connect with Scott's website at www.scottsbigride.com, S-C-O-T-T-S-B-I-G-R-I-D-E.com. Mark, his brother who has the symptoms of Parkinson's, will be in one of the vans and will be updating everyone continuously as to where they are. This is a formidable challenge for Scott. He'll be on the bike for 20 hours a day. You can imagine how many days it takes to be able to ride your bike across the United States of America. He leaves from San Diego on next Wednesday, on the 17th. If you live in California or any of the western states, check into the website. It would mean a great deal to him if you could uh, have uh, any kind of a cheering on as he's traveling uh, down the highways uh, across the United States of America. Scott Lucard, who's raising money for uh, Parkinson's research through the Cleveland Clinic, every penny that's contributed uh, to uh, his uh, race across America goes to fund the uh, incredibly ambitious research program at the Cleveland Clinic and uh, supporting the work of Dr. Jay Alberts and all of his colleagues. Um, I would encourage you, if you're able to, is to uh, connect on to the website and contribute a dollar to let Scott and his brother Mark and all of the staff and the crew uh, that are supporting this effort know that we're we're behind his effort. And uh, if you are along the route anywhere, I just want to encourage you to uh, give him a wave and, uh, and a cheer and to let him know that you're there uh, supporting his incredibly courageous decision to uh, bike across America. This is an incredibly competitive uh, adventure. There are only about 32 people in the race itself. Um, it will be a true challenge to actually finish, as Scott actually explains. And so this is quite an undertaking for him, and I encourage uh, all of you out there to check in with the website. They do uh, live feeds. So they'll be on the van. There are three vans that will follow him. Uh, he's eating and drinking on the bike as he goes. And uh, they'll, they'll do live feeds of where he is. So you'll be able to, if you live anywhere near on the route that he's going, you'll be able to just go out and, again, if you could have a little sign or uh, cheer him on, I know it would mean a great deal to him uh, personally. This is Robert Rogers from Parkinson's Recovery. Thank you for joining me on my radio program today. I'm here every Thursday at 11 o'clock in the morning Pacific time. And that's what's happening on the shores of the Puget Sound, where all the women are smart, all the men are handsome, and all the children are truly loved. Know that by virtue of the fact you're listening to this radio program, you are on the road to recovery. Good day. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.